Okay, so last week we started off with an intro to creation, and I only got about halfway through of where I wanted to go, so we're going to finish that up today, but we're going to rehash just very briefly some of the things that we talked about last week, too. Um, but before we get into that, we're like we're going to do every time, we're going to go over our two questions for this 10-week session about creation. And the first one is, I hope everybody can see this, um, what is the work of creation? The work of creation is God's making all things of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. Somebody has erased my other one back here. Never mind. Well, I'm just going to say it to you guys, and you can just listen right now. I will write it back up there for next week. I didn't check that before class. Okay, the second question is, how did God create man? The answer is, God created man, male and female, after his own image, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, with dominion over the creatures. I'll get that back up there for next week. And so where we're going from here, after the intro, we're going to consider kind of each of these topics on their own. Next week, we're going to go of nothing. After that, we'll go by the word of his power. Then we'll go in the space of six days. Then we'll go all very good. Then after that, we'll go God created man, male and female. God created man after his own image. God created man in knowledge, righteousness and holiness and end up with God created man with dominion over the creatures. So that's where we're going. Last week, we also considered um, some scriptural support for creation. We looked at how we know that creation happened, how we know that God created us and everything. Um, We also looked at some different types of passages that support that God created. Um, The types of passages were the ones that stress the omnipotence of God in the work of creation. We proved that through some scripture. Uh, The second category was the ones that point to his exaltation above nature as the great and infinite God. The third type of passage was the ones that refer to the wisdom of God in creation. The fourth type, the ones that emphasize God's sovereignty and purpose in creation. And then the fifth type was creation as a fundamental act of God. Then we kind of ended up with the scriptural proof of, of God creating with this really beautiful passage that I'm going to read again in uh, this verse in Nehemiah 9, 6. This was after the exiles returned back to the land, after they've been exiled, and they come back and they're constructing the temple and they're rebuilding the land. And this is how they begin their confession of their sins. The very first thing that they state in their confession of sins is it says, You are the Lord, you alone, you have made heaven, the heavens of heaven, with all their hosts, the earth and all that's in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. So right from the beginning of their confession, they're confessing that God is the creator. He has created all things, and all of these things are made for his glory. And then I went on and said, Burkhoff's definition of creation is that free act of God, whereby he, according to his sovereign will and for his own glory, In the beginning brought forth the whole visible and invisible universe without the use of pre-existent material and thus gave it an existence distinct from his own and yet always dependent upon him. I thought that was a a really good definition, really good theological definition to work with that we're going to be working with uh, throughout the rest of these 10 weeks on creation. And then I quickly realized that we were out of time and so that's where we cut it off. And so now... We're going to 
start back where we left off last time in some different aspects of creation, not just the, the types of passages that stress God's different aspects of creation, but these are going to be creation, different aspects of creation and God acting in this way. The first one is that creation is an act of the triune God. Okay? We, we usually think about creation and we usually think about it in a way that God the Father is in the forefront of our minds. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but we've, we've seen this in, in previous verses that we read last week. And I'll go ahead and read them again for us right now. I'm going to ask you all to do, read some scripture like we did last week too, so be prepared. But I'll, I'll start us out first here. In Isaiah 44, it says in verse 24, Isaiah 44, 24, it says, Thus says the Lord, you Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. And then one chapter over in 45, 12, it says, this is God talking again, I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens and I commanded all their hosts. So we see, obviously, that God created these, everything. He, st- he says so himself and we trust him. So it is kind of whenever we're thinking about this, at least economically, that God the Father's the one that's, that's doing the creation. That tends to be the way that we think about this. But the Bible is actually clear elsewhere that this is the act of the other persons of the Trinity too. So it's clear that creation is also the work of the Son. This is in John 1. It's in Colossians 1 that we read last week. And it's also in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. If someone wants to go there and read that for us. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, There we go. So God the Father from whom are all things and from whom we exist and Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So creation is also an act of the Son too. Same passage over in Colossians, very similar idea. And of the Holy Spirit also. So there's a couple of them here. If someone will go to Genesis 1-2, someone go to Job 26, someone to Job 33, and then someone to Psalm 104. So Genesis 1, Job 26, Job 33, and Psalm 104. Anybody got Genesis 1? And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Perfect. Job 26, someone? Job 26, 13, I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't tell you the verse. Job 26, 13. Thank you. Yeah, by his wind, that's the idea of the Spirit, right? By his wind, the heavens were made fair. And then Job 33, 4. Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. 
go. The Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. And then lastly, Psalm 104.30. There you go. You send forth your spirit, they are created. And so you see that creation is an act of the triune God, right? Even though God the Father is usually in the forefront of our minds when we think about this, and that's not wrong. It's not nothing wrong with that at all. But it is a work of the triune God. It's an act of the triune God. <laughs> and another important point from this is that the Son and the Spirit are not dependent powers or they're not some intermediaries through which the Father acts. That's, don't get confused about that. They are actually they're all independent authors together with the Father in the creation acts. Okay? So the creation is not like divided among the three persons, but the whole work itself is ascribed to each of the persons. It's not divided up to where the Son takes this and the Spirit takes this and the Father takes this. The whole act of creation itself is ascribed to each of the, each of the persons. So all things that exist are at once and all at the same time out of or from the Father. They're through the Son and they're in the Holy Spirit. I'll say that again. They're out of or from the Father, through the Son, and in the Holy Spirit. Like I said, usually since the Father takes the initiative of the work of creation, it's usually economically ascribed to him anyway. So it's not wrong to really think about the Father as the one that's initiating creation. But at the same time, it's not independent. They're all acting together as a triune God in the work of creation. So that was the first thing, creation as an act of the triune God. (laughs) The next thing, creation is a free act of God. It is not a necessary result of God's nature. So creation is a work of God. The only necessary works of God are those that separate the persons in the Godhead, which are generation, filiation, and procession. We talked about these at the very beginning whenever we're going through uh, theology proper and the nature of God, that generation, generation, filiation, and procession, those works that separate the persons of the Godhead. But creation is not one of those things. So creation can't be a necessary act of God because if it was, the necessary acts of God are eternal and creation is not eternal. These are the eternal works of God are the works that emanate from the persons themselves. And so creation then is a free act. It's not a necessary act. So God creates all things from the counsel of his will. This is what it says in Revelation 4. Revelation 4, verse 11 says, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So this is an act, this, this is, you can see why this flows from the decrees of God in the catechism, right? Because it's, it's an act of God's will. It's not a necessary act of God. So that was the second thing. Creation is a free act of God, not a necessary act of God. Okay. The next thing, creation is a temporal act of God. So the very first words of Scripture are in the beginning. Right, we read that last time. We focused on that last time quite a bit in the beginning. And so the question then, well, in the beginning of what? The question comes up, in the beginning of what? God tells us in the beginning he created, but in the beginning of what? Well, it was in the beginning of time itself. 
So this is an important thing to distinguish in your mind. The world was created with time, not in time. Okay. Um, Augustine, he, he posed a funny answer. Someone once, apparently, once asked him a question. What did God do before he created the world? What was God doing before he created the world? The world? And Augustine's answer was, he was creating hell for people that asked silly questions. Right? <laughs> um, so Augustine, was, he was a witty guy. <laughs> but it kind of, kind of points, points out a lot of things that might be hard for us to understand because God does not exist in time like we do. Okay? He subsists outside of space. That's what we mean by the word omnipresence, right? God being everywhere at once is not just that God can be here and then be here and then be here at all times. No, it's he exists outside of space itself. Okay? That's what we mean by the word omnipresence. And he also exists outside of time itself. So you don't hear this word a lot, and I might have even made it up. I don't know, but I'm going to say omnitemporal. So God is omnipresent, and he's also omnitemporal because he exists outside of space, and he also exists, or subsists, technically. He subsists outside of time. So the question that is then posed to Augustine, what, did God, what was God doing before he created the world, actually doesn't even make sense to ask because God exists outside of time. And this, I will admit, this is very hard for us to understand because we are bound by time. We are in time itself. And so it's really hard to us, for us to understand something that is completely outside of the reality that we experience and have always experienced. And so uh, maybe the easy way, easiest way to think about this is that don't think of eternity as kind of this indefinite extension of time. If we think of time as kind of linear, you've got eternity that way and then you've got eternity this way. Well, that's not necessarily the way eternity actually is. Eternity is not just an indefinite, exist, uh, an indefinite extension on the timeline here. It's really something that's completely different in essence. Completely different in essence, eternity is. It's not just an extension of time. And this goes into the, the concept of infinity also. Uh, I'll do my best to, to try to taper down myself here, but... Y'all don't, I don't know if y'all know this about me, but my undergraduate degree is in math. And in math, you talk a lot about infinity. You talk a lot about infinity. And my master's and my PhD work is in statistics. And in that, infinity plays a big role also. And so whenever we try to think about infinity in that world, you have to think about it completely as a, a concept that is outside of, of the numerical system that you can think of. You should see me try to explain this to my kids. Um, it doesn't work well. But it's a completely completely different idea. Infinity, when I, I tell my children this, infinity is not a number. Infinity is an idea. It's, it's an idea that's completely separate from the number system. You can actually even have different levels of infinity in mathematics, but I won't, I won't go, down, go, go down that route. <laughs> and so eternity is, is related to that. Don't think of eternity as just an extension of time. It's something that is just completely different in essence. So this is how we can say that God is eternal and God is infinite. It's because it's something completely different than we experience. And accepting this fact, the fact that God subsists completely outside of time, that is what makes it easier to understand how God never had a beginning. That's something else that's fun to try to explain to your kids, right? Well, if God didn't have a beginning, how was he there? <laughs> it's because God subsists outside of time. He's eternal. He's infinite. And accepting this fact, like I said, makes it easier to understand how God never had a beginning and how he's the first cause of all things. And so 
This fact that the world had a beginning and time had a beginning lays the foundation for the rest of Scripture. And that's why God put it at the very beginning. But in the beginning, in the beginning is because it's the foundation for everything else. It's the foundation for the rest of the Scripture in that it gives us the beauty of the Psalms. If you look at Psalm 90, Psalm 102, some of the Psalms that we've already read today, this is the foundation of all that is that the world had a beginning and time had a beginning. And this fact that creation is a temporal act of God, it also leads us to worship Christ. How does it do that? It's because Christ has been there since the formation of time itself. Does someone go to John 1 and someone go to Hebrews 1? Somebody read John 1 verses 1 and 2. Y'all know this. I actually think this might be part of our sermon today, but we'll get a, a taste of that right now. So, John 1, 1 and 2. What a great Christmas verse. In the beginning, the Word already exists. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. There you go. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And the word, He existed with God in the beginning. And also Hebrews 1, verses 10 through 12. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. There you go. And Hebrews 1, remember, this is talking about Christ here. It's not addressing God the Father here. It's talking about God the Son. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. So this fact that creation is a temporal act of God leads us to worship Christ because he was there in the beginning creating. <laughs> the, next, the next aspect we're going to consider today is creation is an act I'm just going to state this one because we're going to get a full treatment of this next week. Creation is an act by which something is brought forth out of nothing. Ex nihilo. Like I said, I'm just going to state that one because it's part of these aspects that we're considering. But we're going to get, because it's part of our catechism, we're going to get a full treatment of that next week. Of nothing. So creation is an act by which something is brought forth out of nothing. Next. Creation is an act by which some, I'm sorry, creation gives the world a distinct yet always dependent existence. So the world is a distinct, has a distinct existence. This is contra pantheism, panentheism, which says God is in everything or all religions are true. Specifically panentheism, it says God is in everything in the world. That is not true. God, creation, the world has a distinct existence from God. And this distinct existence is also dependent upon him. So this, this is proved in Isaiah 42, which we read last week, in Acts 17, when Paul is talking in Acts 17, which we read last week. And this is what, this is what Burkhoff has to say about it. He says, This means that the world is not God, nor any part of God, but something absolutely distinct from God. And that it differs from God, not merely in degree, but in its essential properties. The doctrine of creation implies that while God is self-existent and self-sufficient, infinite and eternal, 
The world is dependent, finite, and temporal. One can never change the other. God is not simply the life or soul or inner law of the world, but enjoys his own eternal, complete life above the world and absolute independence of it. He is the transcendent God, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. And this doctrine is supported by many passages of Scripture. So, the world was and is always dependent upon God. That was back in Acts 17 again. And then in Ephesians 4, 6, it says, One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Hebrews 1, 3 says, talking about Christ, He upholds the universe by the word, by the word of His power. And so our dependence upon God to sustain even our most basic concept of existence is clear from both Scripture and in our minds, right? It, this, is, this is clear to us because we are dependent, especially as Christians, we're dependent upon God to uphold everything around us. This is clear from Scripture. So he upholds this. Creation itself is dependent upon God, but it is distinct from God. Okay? And this along with all the really the other incomprehensible mysteries that we've talked about today and last week, this creation as a triune act of God, creation as a free act of God, creation as a temporal act of God, creation as an act which came from nothing, creation that gives the world a distinct and yet a dependent existence, all is pointing us to the final end or the final purpose of creation, the real teleology of it, is that creation is an act of God to bring about his glory. That's kind of the end of really everything else that we've been talking about in the Sunday school lessons over the past year since we started this, right? All of this is to bring forth God's glory. So God created to manifest it, to manifest his glory. He looked when he created and he saw that everything was good, very good even. We'll cover that in a couple of weeks. He looked and he saw it was good. And when he says it's good, this is not a moral declaration. It's not only a moral declaration, although it is that whenever he creates, whenever he finishes his creation, it is morally good. But it's not only a moral declaration. But when he looks and he sees that the world is good, he sees that the world displays his glory. And that's what it's really all about. And we can get a, we can get a taste of this too whenever we create things because that, this is one of the and perfectly communicated attributes that God gives humans, right? It's the ability to create things. Now, we don't create like God does, ex nihilo. We can't just create stuff from matter that is not preexistent. We, we more synthesize things, right? We take things and we synthesize them into something else. <clears throat> but we do get a, a feeling of this, and this might not be the best way to put this, but we do get a, a bit of glory whenever we create something, Right? Not like the, the glory that, God's, that God gets, but we see little pieces of this when we create. Something like, I do a little woodworking, and whenever I finish a project that I'm proud of, at least, I step back and I say, I like that, that's good, right? And a little piece of me gets a little bit of glory from my work of creation there. You could see this if you've created a very nice piece of computer code that, that gets to the end result that you want, or when you bake a cake, you've synthesized these ingredients together and out comes this new creation, Right? And you get a little bit of glory from that in this cake that you've, you've made. Or when sewing a dress. Or some, especially something like making a baby. Whenever a baby comes out, you see this little piece of glory that comes out. Right, 
And so you get look at it and you say, hey, that's, that's, that's me in there, right? And so there's some, some measure of glory that's really infinitesimal compared to what God's glory was when he created all of the stars in the earth and then man. Um, but we can, we can still feel this, right? And so this is kind of the ultimate purpose of creation itself is for God to display his glory and for God to get glory. <laughs> and so ours are, uh, the way that we do this is pales in comparison completely to the glory that God gets when he creates the, word, the world. Um, Burkhoff again, he says, the glorious perfections of God are manifested in his entire creation. And this manifestation is not intended as an empty show. It's not a mere ex- exhibition to be admired by the creatures, but it also aims at promoting their welfare and promoting their perfect happiness. Moreover, it seeks to attune their hearts to the praises of the Creator and to elicit from their souls the expression of their gratefulness and love and adoration. The supreme end of God in creation, the manifestation of His glory, therefore includes the happiness and the salvation of His creatures and the reception of praise from grateful and adoring hearts. And so this is the way that people really enjoy creation. They enjoy creation by seeing it and then giving glory back to the Creator. You see this in nature. If you've ever been on a wonderful hike and see some beautiful result or something, or some animal that you think is just majestic and, and graceful, you see it and you should give praise back to God and adoration back to God for enjoying His creation that He's given us. And so this is... This is really counter to people that try to enjoy creation without giving glory to the creator. People that would claim that God does not exist. They don't get to fully enjoy it because they don't get to fully enjoy the creator and give the praise and the adoration back to him, which is what it was all meant to do in the first place. So they completely miss the point. We understand that. And so we get to enjoy it even more fully. And so all of this, everything... Not necessarily this room, it's kind of drab. But when you're in creation and you see something beautiful, it's meant to invoke worship. <laughs> and then lastly, an adaptation from Calvin. This is what he says. For the believer, the beauty of creation speaks of the majestic beauty of his God. With Scripture's revelation and the Spirit's work, the believer is able rightly to understand and appreciate the glory of God displayed in creation. He hears God's awesome voice upon the waters, breaking the cedars, shaking the wilderness, and causing new birth. Thus, the believer worships the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Examining creation brings him to praise and to submit to his sovereign creator, who sustains the mass of heaven and earth by his word. God's nod alone shakes the heavens with thunderbolts, kindles the air with flashes, disturbs the earth with storms, and then silences them. And compels the sea to hang as though in midair, only to make it calm again. All of this incites reverential awe and adoration in the heart of every believer for the glorious God heralded by creation. So whenever we come into worship today, this is the same reason that we've come to enjoy creation. It's for God's glory. It's for us to worship him. And all of this should invoke worship And so we closed last week with Psalm 148, and we're going to do that again right now. Close with Psalm 148. And maybe maybe before we close, maybe we'll take questions if there happens to be questions before we close with Psalm 148. Any any questions before we do that? Comments? 
arguments. Feel free to disagree with things that I said. No? No questions? No arguments? Okay. And then Psalm... Yeah. So a necessary act is something that God has to do because it is um, a part of his, his nature itself. Right? A free act is something that God decrees to do and God chooses to do. Right? A necessary act is something that, that God is bound to do because it is part of his nature. Like, the, the only necessary acts of God are the things that separate the persons of the Trinity, right? Generation from the Father, filiation of the Son, and procession of the Holy Spirit. Those are really the only three necessary acts. Okay? Everything else is a decreed act of God. It's necessary for God to be God. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, that's there there's historically more than one type of necessity. Um to answer your question, and I'm not trying to you know No, go ahead. <laughs> nah. We've got a, a little few extra minutes. It's only necessary in the sense that he created, which is contingent. Yeah. I mean, creation's contingent, but it's necessary that he punishes sin in a contingent way. Yeah. It's not necessary for him to be God. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. So there's these levels that get Right. Yeah, no, it's perfect, Richard. Thank you. Anything else? Okay, then. Psalm 148. I'll read it for us. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. And he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mitts, stormy wind fulfilling his his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, Princes of all the rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted, his majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people, praise for all of his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him, praise the Lord. Amen. All right.